Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Thursday, the 1st of April. Breakfasters is usually a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you hear us chat to Alan Bro about his brand new musical comedy, Charlie and the War Against the Grannies. And we also chatted to Dr. Jen, this time about super recognisers, which are people who are skilled at recognising and recalling faces. Uh, Greg Larson is doing a show at the comedy festival called This Might Not Be Hell. Uh, it's a one-man play that he came in to talk us through. Uh, and also, I forgot my computer, and so we had a bit of an analogue chat. <laughs> uh, Simone Ubaldi, looking at cinema, reviewed Anthony Hopkins' heartbreaking turn in The Father, and we had an entertaining tat, a chat with author Neville Zizin about their book, The Pronoun Lowdown. Melbourne's own Triple R. Alan Bro is a comedian, actor, TV presenter and author whose hit children's book, Charlie and the War Against the Grannies, has been adapted to the stage and makes its world premiere at the Arts Centre this April. And to tell us about it, the writer and performer joins us on the line now. Alan, welcome to Breakfasters. Um, hi, Daniel. Hi, um, Geraldine. Hi, Mon. Lovely to be here. It's, uh, the, the book came out in, what, 2016? So it's been with you five years now, this, this tale. Yes, it has been with me five years. It feels like a long time. I was signing some books yesterday at the theatre and just went, oh, goodness me, this feels like a long time ago. (laughs) But we started developing it into a musical about four years ago. And as was with many things, it was meant to happen a year ago. Uh, But, hey, stuff (laughs) happened. And... Now we're going to um, now it's 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 going to finally open. Did it open? Because um, there were posters up and everything like, like a year ago. Did, we, you didn't make it to opening night or anything last year, did you? No, no, you're right. There were a lot of posters up, and there was a terrifyingly large picture of me <laughs> in the foyer of the <laughs> art centre, and I didn't know about it. And I walked through and just went off. Oh, <laughs> In front of, and luckily there was no one in there apart from the the women working the ticket booth who put themselves laughing. Um, but you're right, it was a really weird experience because we were seven days off going into the theatre and we had to cut the whole thing. And so the posters stayed up. And I'm sure it was the same for you, Geraldine, because mm. the comedy festival posters stayed up. And, you know, they were, you were travelling around on trams yeah. while you were sitting in isolation doing radio. <laughs> yeah. It was a really weird experience for performers, I think, because everyone was like, oh, look, there I'm not. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm not doing the thing that I was thought I was going to be doing. But now we um, are. Now we are, exactly. And I've seen you on stage which was absolutely fantastic. Don't talk about me now, Alan. We're talking about your show. Take it offline. Take it offline. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just wanted to say it was nice to be in a crowd. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. What should we know about Charlie? Well, basically, it's a story of a nearly 12-year-old boy who wants to get a paper round um, because he's bored and it's the holidays. Uh, But him and his best friend, Hills, discover that they can't get a paper round because the paper rounds are controlled by a cabal of evil grannies. (laughs) As 
as happens, and to defeat these evil grannies and to get a paper round, and essentially they discover a, a much wider plot that doesn't just involve paper rounds. Um, to defeat these grannies, they have to go to war with them. Uh, so, yeah, we Is... create a war against grannies on stage. Oh, amazing. Yeah, Is the um, paper round a metaphor for the housing market? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes and no, Geraldine. <laughs> yes, because that sounds like an interesting idea, but no, because this is for five plus eight. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, most of them are not trying to burst into the... Um, housing market right at the moment. <laughs> Never too early. Um, how uh, how does how does the show come to life? How grand is this spectacular? Oh, it's it. Oh, that's a very difficult. It's difficult to quantify grandness. <laughs> um, and there's shadow puppets. Yeah, there's shadow puppets. So, like, there's live music. So, the, the all the music is done live on stage. And what we try to do with the music is make music that um, that kids would enjoy, but adults would enjoy as well. So that if the kids go home humming the songs, the, the parents aren't going to want to kill them. So it's more <laughs> Rocky Horror Picture Show as opposed to the Wiggles musically. And the great thing about puppets is that you can create using scale and different lights and things like that, you can create these really wonderful, big, powerful images. So there, there is a grandness to it that belies the fact that there are only four performers on stage. Mm. When, you, when you wrote this book, did you have any visions in your head of a big stage show or are you just taking it one step at a time? I just took it one step, step at a time, yeah. I didn't... Um, I didn't really think of it as a stage show, and then I was—I had some spare time, and I started to think of it as a stage show. <laughs> and, um, okay, and as as happens with a lot of these things, a lot of action happened in the school playground. So, for instance, the head of um, families and children's programming at the art centre Melbourne, her kids went to the same school as my child. So I handed her a copy of the book in the playground one time and said, do you think this would make a good musical? She said, I haven't read this. I'll have a read of it. And she said, yeah, I think it would. And it went from there. Wow. wow. And Kit, yeah. Kit Warhurst um, does the, the music in it, yeah? Yeah, so Kit and I um, co-compose the music and he plays the music and um, it sounds wonderful. Yeah. Like, it's actual, it's actual rock and roll. Like, it's really this, you know, there's... there's drums, there's guitars, there's all manner of rock and roll instruments like some pianos uh, and, of course, cowbell. Oh, um, brilliant. Yeah, Amazing. yeah. Cow, cowbell all the time with cowbell. <laughs> uh, but it sounds, it sounds really wonderful on stage and, it's, and, and I think it's really lovely for the kids to be able to see the music being made instead of there just being back, backing tracks. Mm. Was lockdown beneficial to your dancing and singing abilities? Uh, no. <laughs> no. No. Lockdown wasn't beneficial to almost any of my abilities. Like, I didn't learn to, like, I, I just, I, I, I feel like I'm in a real minority where I didn't learn to lay bricks. <laughs> I didn't learn to make any form of yeast-based product. <laughs> Um, 
I didn't learn to dance. I didn't take up another language. Uh, I didn't do anything like... I just did some homeschooling and just lay around the place going, <laughs> So, I, you know, I didn't make a calendar like Geraldine. I didn't do anything like... I just didn't do anything like that. I was just completely unmotivated. Um, you became a teacher. That's what it yeah. sounds like. Well, yeah, yeah. I tried to become a teacher. Um, and I I mean, I'm not one of those people who are like, oh, I have I have really great respect for teachers now. I always did. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have less respect for myself now. <laughs> uh, and Charlie kicked on in the literature world. Uh, yep. So... I know that this hasn't even made its premiere yet, but once it sells out and goes gangbusters, what about these karaoke cockroaches? Well, look, the second book here, Charlie and the Karaoke Cockroaches, does seem right for stage adaptation. But this has taken four years and one global pandemic. (laughs) And I, I sort of, I was, when I said before I was signing some books for the opening for Melbourne, I was signing some of the karaoke cockroaches books and I just, I, I looked at it and I thought, yeah, we could, that could be good. You know, they're obviously puppets and that sort of thing. And then I just felt a deep well of anguish. <laughs> and the desire to become a bricklayer. <laughs> so I, 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 I'll get through this first one, <laughs> yeah. and we'll see if there's any any energy left. Like I, I, I hope it goes really well, and I hope that the public clamours for more. Um, I don't know what the public clamouring actually sounds like, um, but I think it's a term more used than heard. <laughs> but uh, if if there is any clamorous. Uh, uh, we'll probably get into another book. Yeah. And just when you are signing books for children, do you have a go-to? Do, is it, do you overthink it? Is it? Oh, yeah, what's your message? Mm. Yeah, what do you say? Oh, look, yeah, there, there's, sometimes you're in the zone and you just go, oh, hi, what's your name? And they go, Madison. You go, is that with two Ds? And they go, yeah. And they look at you like, wow. And Adam asked how many Ds I have in my name. <laughs> Like I'm killing this today. <laughs> hey, Madison, thanks for reading the book. And other times, someone will say, "You'll say, Madison, is that with two Ds?" They'll say, "No, one D, a one Y, and an I at the end." And you just, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and then other times you're right. You overthink it. You go, "I might write a really." This kid looks like this could be their moment. Like they meet an author and and the. The inscription, the thing I write in the book could propel them to be an author. And you start trying to write something meaningful and you realise that, A, you're using an enormous Sharpie, so <laughs> completely unreadable. And, B, that you're just an ass. And you're going to open this up one day and read it and go, that guy was high. <laughs> uh... so the easiest thing is to just go, what's your name? Madison. Good on you, Madison. <laughs> 
Okay. On you go. What's your name? Zarathustra. <laughs> well, Charlie and the War Against the Grannies is on at the Playhouse from the 14th to the 12th of April. And times are at midday and 10am and 3pm. You go to the theartcentremelbourne.com.au to check out all the details. And uh, we've been speaking with its creator, Alan Bro. Thanks so much, Alan. Thank you, Mon. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Jess. It's lovely to be on with you guys. Have a lovely morning. Thanks, Thank you. Alan. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. For Weird Science this morning, we're joined as always by the unmistakable Dr. Jen. Morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning, Daniel. But am I unmistakable? Would you remember my face? Yeah. Bloody oath! Yours. <laughs> <laughs> Yours, we That's because you have to look at me every week. But if you'd never met me before, would you remember my face? That's the question. But if we'd never met you, there'd be nothing to remember. Oh, you're so picky. <laughs> if, you, if you walked past me in a crowded room oh. and saw my face for a couple of seconds. No. Nah. No, nah. nah, exactly. None of us would, right? But it turns out that some people do. So I have to I have to just give you a little bit of a um, of a uh, TV review to tell you why I got interested in this topic of people who are really good at recognising faces. Mm. So I've just finished watching a series with my kids. It's an Australian series uh, called The Unlisted. And it's a couple of years old. It was filmed in Sydney, but it was a pretty cool story. Basically, the plot is that there's this secret government agency who wants to take control of the world's young people by implanting a computer chip into their teeth when they're having a routine dentist appointment Mm. at school. And once they have the chip in their teeth, this organisation can manipulate and control their every move and behaviour. Mm. So the idea is the government's trying to design a future workforce that is fully compliant with whatever they're told to do. So it's a pretty interesting series to watch with my kids. We had quite a few interesting conversations, but it's called The Unlisted because there's this small group of underground kids who managed to avoid getting the implant and so therefore they're officially considered unlisted and of course they take on the role of trying to take down this evil corporation. But what happens in one of the episodes is that the evil people employ these people who they called super recognisers. And these people basically just stand out on the street watching crowds of people come and go with the idea that if one of these unlisted kids walked past, they would be immediately be able to recognise them and call in the authorities. And I just thought that was kind of sci-fi, just mm. like the rest of the show. But it turns out that it's not. I've <sighs> been... I've been corrected. There are people in the community who really are called super recognisers who, if they've seen a face once, even really briefly, years later, they can recognise that person. Is that exhausting? So it's not just recognising people that you know, it's recognising people you don't know. Wow. I feel like it would be it would be kind of exhausting if every, like you walk down a busy, you walk down Burke Street and you're like, oh, yep, seen you, seen you, seen you. You know, wouldn't it be kind of a lot in your brain to take all that in? Oh, absolutely. And I read some interviews with some of these people, super recognisers, and they were saying they kind of feel like stalkers because they see someone and feel like saying, oh, yeah, I saw you in Woolworths last week. And they realise that's <laughs> not a good thing to say. <laughs> But, but 
Um, it's it's so the the coin the term was coined in two thousand and nine, and we reckon it's one to two percent of the population <gasps> who have this ability to always recognise a face that they've seen. So it's not just recognising, you know, it's not just with more accuracy, but it's for long, long periods being able to recognise the face. Mm-hmm. And research has shown that these re- recognising skills are completely independent of intelligence or personality or any other perception abilities. But what we do know is that it's genetic so you can inherit this ability to be a super recognizer but people from all walks of life can be in this one to two percent so it doesn't say anything else about you and if you look at iq iq scores they're spread evenly just like the rest of the population it's just this really unusual genetic trait and the university of new south wales has designed this test you can all go and do it if you look up unsw face test and it's the most challenging test there is. So apparently there are other tests out there that you can do, but, you know, a lot of people just score 100%. So it doesn't separate out, separate out the, the good from the really, really good. Mm. But on this test from UNSW, any super recognizer, someone who gets to call themselves a super recognizer, so the top 2% of the, of the population, they'll only score 70% on this <gasps> test. Only 11 people who have ever taken it scored above 90% and one person scored 97%. Mm. And I did the test and it's really hard. Really? (laughs) Yeah, I just felt like I was guessing half the time. So you start off by being shown a series of 20 photos of people and you're sitting there feeling really cocky going, oh, yeah, that person's got really distinctive lips or, yeah, I'll remember that mole or, yeah, that eye shape. It's really distinctive. And then they show you photos of some of the same people and some different people, but in completely different situations. So different poses, different facial expressions, different lighting. And you have to say which of these people you've seen before. And I'm just sitting there going, I I don't know. (laughs) I really can't tell. So I got 61% correct. Well, that's pretty good, isn't it? It's a pass. It's a credit. Yeah, it puts me in the, it, put, it makes me average. It took, puts me in the top 50% of people. Oh, I'd be happy huge with that. Numbers of people who've done this test. But, but if I'm vaguely okay at it and I only got 60% one right, like that's not far off 50% guessing, is it? Oh, <laughs> okay. What if you, and so they're using famous people so that we know who they are. No, no, the whole point is that they're not famous people because if it was someone who was famous, you'd probably seen already seen their face oh, okay. from lots of different angles and using lots of different expressions. Like I couldn't believe just how different it is looking at someone's face when they're not smiling versus when they're smiling. Right. It totally changes your perception of them. So, no, these are non-famous people. Okay. These would just be people you've never seen before and you have to try and work out if you can recognise them or not. And what would be the evolutionary benefit of being a super recogniser? Well, I was thinking about that. What do you guys reckon? I mean, it makes you very um, sociable. I I read a few people talking about they operate in sales and they're really popular because they can always recognise someone and, and, and often name them. And say, oh yeah, g'day, Fred. You were in here seventeen years ago. Nice to see you again. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Makes you feel important if you're talking to someone who recognises you. So spies and car salesmen, like 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it it turns out that, you know, being able to identify as a self, uh, as a super recognizer can be really useful for your CV because you think about it. Police want to be able to pick up people from CCTV and other dodgy, grainy images. Immigration want to be able to know when you hold up a passport and look at someone's face, want to be certain that it's the same person. Intelligence agencies, financial institutions, casinos, casinos want to know if you're the same person, even if you're, you know, looking a bit different. So it's actually there are a lot of uh, people who want to employ you if you've got these skills. And also think about it from the other hand. If we can understand more about how some people are so good at this, maybe it will help us with people who have clinical conditions which make it really hard for them to recognise others. I don't know if you remember, I can't remember how many years ago it was, we talked about a condition called prosopagnosia, which is when people have facial blindness and not mm. only can they not recognise anyone else, but they can't recognise themselves. Mm which is full on. Oh, so maybe, you know, maybe this could help with that. And they, I found another study where they analysed when you actually go to a training day. So you can go and do a training program to become better at facial recognition. And they analysed people before and after they'd done this training. And they found zero evidence that the training worked. So even though oh. 93% of people said, yeah, I'm much better at recognising faces having just done this training program, they weren't. There was no evidence that it improved people. So this is not really something you can learn. This is a skill that you're born with and you're blessed with uh, and, and you're really useful to people. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, I, it would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? Especially That's why I reckon. Because you would think, do I know you? I forgot your name. This is embarrassing. But, but, yeah, but would you get to that stage or would you, or would you just know that you, Where know, you know them from? Yeah. I guess it depends how good the rest of your memory is. I mean, I just mm. can't imagine it because I think I'm really bad with faces and I found this test quite confronting. I felt really bad that I was looking at these people who I just stared at a picture of and I had no idea if it was the same person or not. It makes me realise how, you know, particularly back in pre-COVID days, walking around on campus at uni and there's lots of students who recognise you mm. because you're up the front. But if you're teaching a really big class, you know, if there's 300 people mm. in front of you, 300 students, I don't have the ability to remember their faces. So you're walking around campus kind of feeling bad and you're not smiling at people you should be. I'd love to be able to recognise more faces. But, but, but maybe you just smile at everybody, so <laughs> then it's okay. <laughs> I, I try that, Jess. Yeah. That, that's it's so, it's not been a good time for super recognisers to flex, has it? Because No one's out and about. <laughs> you've got masks, you've got Zoom boxes with people's names on them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think it's it's going to be very interesting to see whether this ability kind of becomes used more for evil than for good yeah. in the future. I mean, I read this great piece in The Guardian talking about this police officer who'd been highly decorated because he'd managed to nab all these criminals from grainy CCTV footage and he was, you know, these accolades of how important it was to have people like him in the force. Yeah. But I don't know. Is it also, I, I, you know, watching this series with my kids made me think, are there also really bad reasons <laughs> where being, anyone being able, someone being able to recognise you no matter what you, how you're mm. dressed or what facial expression you Yeah, no using. anonymity. Don't fight it, Dr. Jen. It's progress. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> um, I mean, I want to know how they do it. I want there to be mm. more research to work out how they do it because I found myself looking at these pictures. I'd focus on one distinctive thing and think, oh, yeah, I'll recognise that lip shape. That's really unusual. Or mm. I'll recognise those high eyebrows. But the evidence we have 
so far suggests that super recognizers kind of take a more holistic view of the whole face and they can take this snapshot and take all the features in at once. But I'd be interested to know if that's what's going on to have this skill. You'd be crazy not to do the test and if you scored well, put it on your CV if it applied. It would be... Absolutely. If you score over seventy percent on this test, it's the hardest test there is. You can call yourself a super recognizer. Oh, so can't I'll, wait to I'll, do it. I'll tweet you, you guys. I'll tweet you guys in a second with the with the link for everyone who wants. I've already nice. found it. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, it, did, yeah. it does take like twenty minutes though. You got to invest a bit of energy and time. Oh, if you yeah. you know if you get distracted, you got to you got to focus. How about that? A science and TV review segment all in one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the unlisted is on Netflix. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Jen, amazing, and uh, we'll talk again soon. See you later. Thanks. Triple R. Greg Larson is one third of comedy podcast The Grub with Anne Edmonds and Ben Russell, and has been seen on the ABC's At Home Alone Together, The Weekly, Rosehaven, Dirty Laundry Live, and Get Kraken. His new show, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, titled This Might Not Be Hell, is on at the Town Hall until April 18. And to tell us about it, the comedian joins us now. Greg, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Hey. Good morning. It's um, this show's a bit nostalgic. The, my my yes, it's um, it's set in two thousand four, um, and I use a lot of music in the show. So yeah, there's a bit of nostalgia there. It's uh, I don't know whether people will find it good or bad. What <laughs> <laughs> uh, what role does John Howard play? Um, I mean, in some ways he's he's not in it, but in other ways he is the inspiration for the entire show. Because <laughs> um, it's all about it's all about being on the dole. So. Um, in the Howard years, so um, you know he's he's responsible. Yeah. Um, it's him and, and and Tony Abbott. I would say are the two biggest. <laughs> they're, they're my two biggest inspirations. <laughs> this, uh, this Greg, you play all all the characters in the show. Can mm-hmm. you talk to us, uh, to us about some of the different characters that are that are in it? Yeah. Um, so I play I play all the characters. Well, well actually, with, with the exception of of one, um, which is played by Greta Lee Jackson. Um, she does a, a voice in it. But um, I play um, I play a Centrelink worker who's um, you know a kind of frustrated bureaucrat who uh, the the main character James has to deal with. Um, I play the main character James, who is basically a version of myself. Um, but it's not myself, and uh, I can I can go into more and in, more on that in a bit. Um, <laughs> I play um, I play a, a a person who works in a job network agency called Stacy, who has a, a a bit of a problem. I play a, a record shop worker who's um, I don't know how to describe him without um, swearing, but he's an absolute <laughs> <laughs> he's not a nice guy. Um, <laughs> And I play a few little uh, interstitial uh, voices uh, throughout, you know, ancillary characters throughout the show as well. Well, go on, Jason. Then James. Um, James, sorry. Yes, no. I mean, James is the James is the main character. He's um, and I, you know, I started when I made the show. I, I wanted to make it a sort of a, a what if version of myself. Um, so I, you know, I wanted to make a story about what it feels like to be on the dole and. I wanted to set it in 2004, but I didn't want to make it exactly my life story. You know, some of the thing, most of the things in this show happened to me, but some things happened to other people I know on the dole. And James is basically a version of myself, which is what if I 
you know, didn't go to uni? Um, you know, what if I sort of didn't get out of, what if I didn't get off the doll kind mm. of thing? Um, so it's kind of like a, a version of myself that, um, what if I was never in comedy or the arts? Yeah. Um, and, and that's the sort of what James became. So whilst his circumstances are different to mine, he's definitely um, my taste in music and probably pretty similar to me in terms of <laughs> how he um, how he acts. What do you think about uh, what period? Was there a heyday to be on the doll? Was it <laughs> is now particularly bad? What do you think historically? Yeah, um, I don't. Well, I, it was. Yeah, it was it was a great time to be on the doll. <laughs> it was, honestly, it was a, it was a blast. Um, no, I I think um, the reason I said it in two thousand four was because. A, that was the time period of my life where I was on the dole for quite a while, and that's when I did work for the dole and um, a bunch of other stuff. So I was very familiar with it. And, you know, there was, an, or, there was also an aesthetic to it that I liked because it was during the Howard years when they did introduce work for the dole, and it was sort of a time period where we were in that whole sort of dob-in-a-dole-bludger thing. Mm. Um, but it also, like, nostalgically, you know, it's... I mean, it's always kind of a, a weird thing when you're sort of nostalgic for a time when, you know, you hated everything that was going on in politics or in government, which hasn't changed at all. Um, but I loved the music of the time and, and music is a, a big part of my life. So that was, you know, one of the, the, the sort of linchpins or the backbones of the show. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a bad time to be on the dole, but I. I, I sort of also wanted to make the point that it's always a bad time to be on the dole. Mm. It didn't really, you know, and, and I wrote the show before the pandemic, um, but the pandemic hasn't really changed my opinions or the point of what I'm trying to say, which is that, you know, the system is a nightmare and and nothing much has changed. You know, it, the way that we treat unemployed people is, is still the same. Do, how do you make, I mean... It sounds like an, maybe an obvious question, but it's a quite. Mm. A, how do you make something like that funny <laughs> when it's such a um, time? And well, did you find it I mean, funny when you were living it as well? Mm. There's always there's always things you know. It, you find it probably less funny when you're living in it. Um, but there were so many times when I was dealing with Centrelink that, in my head, I was like, if I wasn't so angry, this would almost be funny. Mm. <laughs> um, the amount of times that. You know, like I, I, I don't want to, you know, go into too many spoilers with the show and everything. But the amount of times that, you know, administration errors or paperwork problems stuff you up, and you're just like, this is almost funny if I could just <laughs> step out of it, you know. And you do hear funny things happening in Centrelink, and and there are just funny things that happen. There's funny characters that you meet, and and. I, you know, in some ways I'm poking fun at, at, at people, at other ways I'm just making fun of the situation. But, I mean, it's, for me, I mean, that's, I guess, just my, my whole philosophy on comedy is that comedy has helped me literally laugh through my own depression. <laughs> um, so I've always been someone that tries to find the funniness in the, the worst things so that it actually helps, you know, it, that, that you can actually, if you can laugh at something, it takes away the power of that thing mm. sometimes. And um, 
and that was my intention anyway and hopefully I have succeeded. <laughs> well, um, they say, what is it, um, comedy is tragedy plus timing, so I guess the timing <clears throat> is, what, 17 years, that, that's what yeah. Yeah, works out. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw a, a trial of this show pre-pandemic um, mm. <clears throat> and I think you absolutely nailed the the frustration of being sent around in circles. Well, I think I must have been on the dole at the same time or a very similar mm. time because there was so many parts in the show where I was pulling my hair out just going, oh, my God, that's you mm. nailed it. It's exactly that. Um, and I found that, um, yeah, I mean... In terms of the comedy, it is very, very funny, and I think you've absolutely nailed, um, you know, that that tragedy and timing and stuff. Um, and mm. also, you've put in some hats that are pretty funny as well. I don't. There's no spoilers there, but look out for some some hats that come up in the show. <laughs> I use some very cl- clever theatrical devices yes. to, uh, <laughs> to show who I am. You'd be um, releasing a soundtrack. Is it Tool or what are we looking at? Oh, like <laughs> I have um, I have a playlist. I, like I, I sort of made a Spotify playlist and then I was thinking, oh, I could share this. You know, and, and this is all like the music that I – the house music that I'm playing at the, at the beginning of the show and, um, you know, keen observers will notice that at the very, very opening, not even the opening to the show, the pre-show when you're walking into the room, I'm kind of like flicking through tracks. I'm not actually, you know, like there's a lot of a lot of songs and you, you'll hear a bit of a song and then I'll skip to the next one. Um, but it's, as I as I sort of built the playlist, I realise I'm now at like, I'm just looking at here, I think it goes for about six hours now. <laughs> so, I couldn't stop adding music to it. Um, and I don't think I'll ever get through. Just roll all of straight the songs. into a DJ set after the gig. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, because and the other thing too is the, the, the unfortunate thing is like a, a, the playlist. It has to be songs that are only, you know, no later than two thousand four. But mm. that doesn't mean that they can't be from the sixties or the seventies. <laughs> yeah. I go back pretty far. Um, this show's obviously you know political. As a subtext, if nothing else, what what's your approach to politics and comedy? Do you get, do you immerse yourself in it? Do you get sick of it and go to silliness, or what? What's your approach? Well, when I first started doing comedy, my approach was keep them separate um, because I was probably too passionate about politics and comedy was my my vacation from that. Mm. Um, I didn't want to talk about politics because I felt like other people do it better in their comedy. And I like a lot of absurd stuff and weird stuff. And I thought I just want comedy to be fun and not have to think about politics. But over time, that sort of changed. Um, you know, sometimes I, I, I don't talk about politics and sometimes I do. And I find that my approach has been visceral anger and that <laughs> seems to translate pretty well i found myself a, a niche i remember actually in um during when i was um filming the show tonightly there was a senate estimates inquiry into a particular comedy segment where i called a conservative politician the c-word and there's a whole senate estimates inquiry about it and the way that we the the, the ruling of the senate estimates inquiry was that um i was okay to do so because i was playing the uh, the character 
of an unreasonably angry man. <laughs> um, so I would say that's my approach to politics, an unreasonably angry man. Oh, God. Um, and so when does the show start? It has started already. Um, it was on, I've had four preview nights yeah. um, here in Melbourne. And now I am, um, there's a couple of nights off and it will be back on Thursday, this Thursday, the um, 1st of April. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going through to the end of the run, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which is ends on, I think, gen, uh, April 18. So I'll be doing every night except Monday nights. Excellent. From, from Thursday. Is it and just is it trying to put on this show every night? Is it as opposed to doing stand up? Well, how do you feel about doing the one man play element? It's it's yeah, it is. It's definitely trying. It's you know the the nerves when I'm sitting backstage are a lot more significant than stand up. It's <laughs> you know I'm really putting myself out there in a lot of ways, and I get nervous. There is sincerity in this show, which mm. is not something I always do. Um, and that makes me nervous. Um, but it's, it's also, you know, it's a lot of, it's just a lot of work. There's a lot of physicality in it. It's a lot of props. It's a lot of tech cues. And so that all weighs on me, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing it. So, you know, in some ways I, I, I'll be sitting backstage with all my props and everything going, why can't I just do a stand up (laughs) talking? (laughs) Um, but I mean, the rewards are great when, when it goes well, it's really good. Um, and, um, yeah, so it's it's a lot more stressful and a lot more trying, but it, it's 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 worth really it in enjoyable. the end. Yeah. Well, this might not be hell. Is on at the comedy festival till April eighteen. Head to comedyfestival.com.au for more details. And we've been speaking to uh, writer and creator and performer of this one man play, the unreasonably angry Greg Larson. Thanks very much, Greg. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Cheers. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Got no computer today. Mm-hmm. How's it feel? Um, parts of me wish that I did have the computer, but it's very nostalgic. Um, I, so I've rocked up this morning. It's, I I left, I do have a computer, but I left my charger at home. Um, so I rode my bike in this morning and I haven't ridden the bike in for maybe a week and a Mm -hmm. half or something like that. So I was like, come on, you know, you know, when you, when you stop doing it, you get out of the rhythm or something, I just get back in. I was like... Always finding an excuse not to ride the bike. I mean, the rain helped last week. I was like, oh, no, it's raining. Yeah. Oh, better drive. Um, but then this morning, it's like, there is no excuse not to ride your bike today. And as a to be motivated, I was just like, just chuck the things in my bag. I went, come on, you've got everything, let's go. And then I rode, like, was halfway and was like, I don't have my charger. Um, and the computer is dead flat. And um, and also didn't have my keys uh, and stuff, but was like, oh well. Um, so started using obviously there's computers here at the office, and was just remote, like remember when I first started in this job, I didn't have a computer for like the first month or so, mm-hmm. and I would come in every morning, and I'd go to the office. And I'd sit there in the dark because I didn't know where the light switches were. <laughs> and I'd just sit there and kind of, you know, get my work together and print out print out the news and stuff. Like print it out for the first hour or so and then go back in like in <laughs> while songs were playing and frantically find another one. And um, But, yeah, just kind of, yeah, would print it out and come out bits of paper. 
And then it got to, yeah. Maybe I'm relieved to hear that that was not that long ago. Yeah. It was six years ago. <laughs> well, still. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, computers were absolutely around then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> was, there was no reason for me not to have a computer. I just, you know. <laughs> and I'm, like, I yeah, I bought, I did buy a computer, like, during Comedy Festival that year. A laptop. Yeah, bought a laptop. Yeah. Mm. Bought myself a laptop. Do and you still one, have it? Is yeah, the, it's the same yeah, one. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Because I remember filling in and then you'd, yeah, you'd go into a computer and print out the wire service. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it is old school. Yeah. Mm. And then collate from there, mm. uh, which I enjoyed. Oh, yeah? Mm. It, it gives like... you a bit, a bit of purpose in the morning. It was like, you know, I come in and, sit, and you know, sit the, at a desk. And, yeah. Oh. Stakes are high if the printer doesn't work. Oh, oh mate. So I click print and then nothing, nothing oh. coming out, no paper. I'm like, oh, but that, that's all right. Thankfully, I've been here for I, for six years now, so I know where they keep the paper. So, so you know, I didn't. I sat in the dark because no one showed me where the light switches were. Like Michelle Bennett found out. Like I told her after a month or so, and she goes, "I can't believe you just come in and sit in the dark every morning." And I was like, "Well, <laughs> what did I work? I don't know where didn't the switches know I was are." Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do like growing up. We the first computer we got at home though, um, I bought when I was. Oh, I must have been. In like no, it's after high school. We never had a computer in high school, and I'm, so the first computer I got was like this made one. You know the type of computers that gamers would get, and they go, oh, "I want this hard drive and that screen and stuff." I just didn't know, and then that's so that's what I thought you did. So I spent like two thousand dollars on this computer, like custom built, a custom built computer. How much RAM? <laughs> like heaps, I reckon. <laughs> And it was just like, why? I looked now. I'm like, I'd use it for like a year before, like, and it just was became the family computer at home. Mum loved it, you know. Mum became a gamer, and um, <laughs> Dad really got into Flight Simulator. Did uh, you have a friend that compiled the pieces, or how do you know what to do? I just went to the computer store. Oh, God. <laughs> Might have been taken for a bit of a ride. <laughs> it sounds like maybe. <laughs> I, was, I was in a laptop class. Mm. Pioneered. First time the school had ever had a laptop class. Yeah, wow. And so we're talking, I think every all these laptops came loaded with like Windows 95 or something. Mm. Amazing. And, and so we're, the first class, we're, basically the class was spent waiting for your computer to boot up. <laughs> and then the, <laughs> then the bell rang. <laughs> Come back tomorrow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Get to work on the start bar. In, in high school, though, we'd um, obviously to do assignments and stuff, I'd always use the neighbour's computer. Um, and primary school was next door neighbours um, and would do whatever homework needed to be done and then would spend four hours playing Where in the World is Carmen San Diego. And then, um, and then later it was other neighbours... I'd go down and, you know, do some – get my homework done. And then they had, like, a, a um, burnt copy of, like, a Formula One race and I would play that. But to log into that um, – Hang on. Sorry. Th- they had a burnt copy of, for you to watch a race of Formula One. No, no, no. Like, the, a, game. a game. Oh, sorry. A game. Like, a pirated copy yeah. of this of this game. And this, this computer game had this thing where – to avoid people pirating their games, 
they would have before you could start playing. They'd go, "What is the on the seventh page of the um, mm. manual? What's the first word or whatever?" So <laughs> to get around that, they just had a photocopied book of the manual. So whoever he burnt it off, they'd also photocopied the manual. So you pull this manual out and go skip through the pages and go, all oh, right, and type in the word. They go, oh, yeah, that's correct. And then you get to play the game. But I would, man, I was so addicted to this game. And it wasn't even, it wasn't, this is not my home. I would, oh. <laughs> like, I'd be down at the neighbours and, like, it'd be 10 o'clock at night. The neighbours would, Everyone had gone to bed. They'll be like, oh, yeah, just, you know, stay for as long as you need. And I'm in there going, <laughs> and then mum would come down and knock on the door. She goes, you need to come home. <laughs> Do you reckon you got on their nerves or they liked having you around? I think they were just kind of, well, I don't know. I mean, they seemed at the time, I felt very comfortable in staying yeah, there. Yeah, you know, because I did. Yeah, but, yeah. What about that's terrific? What about, well, they made me feel comfortable yeah, to stay. Yeah, that's great. There. I think they were just like, yeah, it's like they were like, but they'd be like, we're going to go to bed, but, you know, just <laughs> stay there for as for as long as you need, whatever. That's yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. So yeah. I can't remember the, you know, the way they said it's totally fine, or if they were like, we're going to bed. Mm. Or whether it was, we're just going to go to bed. I mean, that's fine. Does that hardware, do you reckon they still have that? Do people people throw out computers, don't they? Oh, all the time. Yeah, Mm. it's just my family that. I mean, there would be a printer in the study of my parents' place with the the side bits with the circles, like the hole punches. Mm. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? What, so printer paper that's oh, perforated yes, 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 and connected yes, yes. And with side bit. And you'd have to line it up. Yeah, you've got to line it up. And really, this is com- – oh, God, I'm not, how old am I? There's not, it's because I'm not really doing a good job explaining. Between us. No, I'm sure I know what it is, but right now I don't. Oh, I'll, I'll no, Google exactly it. what you're talking but it's, about. But it's a, it was very satisfying. But, so for the printer paper to go through the printer, it would uh, – it would wheel through mm. because there would be poke there'd be sticks not sticks <laughs> spokes <laughs> maybe what? Sp- spokes spokes yes poking through the holes and yeah. and and it's what but, feeds it through. yeah what feeds it through oh. and then at the end of it you would have to well it would look better if you did you would tear off but the perforated right. but then obviously that's there's no guarantee that that's going to work you got to mm. be careful yeah but when you nailed it <laughs> What a win. What a great feeling. What <laughs> were you talking about the burnt game? We used to get because dad used to sell computers growing up, so we would Oh, did really? your dad take me for a ride? <laughs> and it was like I met this sucker in Albury. No. <laughs> but he used to get um we used to get the like the C D ROM compilations of like demos oh, of games. Yeah, yeah. And it was f- and that was all that's as far as we would get. Like dad would never actually buy us because he's like, well, I got this for free. This is what. This is all you need. And but you'd get so you'd get to one level. Oh. And yeah. then it would be like to get to you know go buy the game and right. just, I got so good at the first level <laughs> of so many games. You're, you're an expert <laughs> beginner. <laughs> Triple R. After that soothing theme tune, the incomparable Simone Ubaldi is here with her eye on cinema. Morning, Simone. 
Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Good, thank yeah, you. Yeah, good. A bit trepidatious about this film. Yeah, rightly so. Uh, the film is called The Father, and uh, it's nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. Um, and it's a it's a quite an outstanding star vehicle for not just Anthony Hopkins but also Olivia Coleman, who co-star in this piece, which is about um, uh, an elderly gentleman succumbing to dementia. Mm. That is that is what the film is about. So Anthony Hopkins plays Anthony, um, the titular father, and he is living in a beautiful, beautifully kind of put together London flat, expecting the kind of arrival of his caretaker daughter Anne. Uh, he is curmudgeonly um, difficult, and as the film progresses, increasingly confused about who Anne is, um, which is aided by some kind of clever devices within the film um, in terms of who plays characters. Um, the story is pretty slight. Basically, um, Anthony can't take care of himself, needs care, relies on Anne. Anne has fallen in love with a man and, and intends to move to Paris to uh, live with him and um, Anthony has difficulty processing this and it kind of escalates from there. Uh, the film is based on a play. Uh, by a guy called um, Florian Zeller, a French guy, massively acclaimed 2014 production. And and Florian has actually adapted it for the screen, done a fairly decent job. I'm always really nervous about theatre adaptations because they tend to expose theatrical writing as, you know, not human. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> but actually this one really, it's it's on a knife edge, but it's on the good, it, it sort of, it, it hangs there pretty well in terms of the dialogue. Um, and the, I think the reason why it's so acclaimed is because it, it sort of puts you into the mind of somebody who's experiencing dementia in a fairly visceral way in terms of how the confusion presents, the defence mechanisms that Anthony develops to try and make sense of an increasingly nonsensical and frightening world. And, uh, yeah, it is, again, the device is super clever. It's very brilliantly constructed. But the thing that makes this film... So acclaimed, and the reason why people are kind of—I'm <laughs> aware I sound heavy in talking about this. This is a film that was made pre-COVID. Mm. It, it debuted at Sundance last year, and it was a different world then. And it's just the, the heaviness of this film sits so heavily in in the contemporary context, and that is why I sound heavy when yeah. I speak. Um, so what's Extraordinary about it, extraordinary then extraordinary now, is Anthony Hopkins, who at 83 has given one of the greatest performances of his career. I mean, he is a marvel at any time, but this is going to be one of the things he's remembered for. Um, and Olivia Coleman, I think most people like me wish that she was uh, like my mum slash best friend. Uh, <laughs> and she is also remarkable in a really... Um, difficult role and um, a number of supporting actors who are also very good. So the cast is all excellent and Anthony Hopkins is just an unbelievable star. Uh, the thing about the father that I kind of struggle with and I was like, ah, do you want to talk about this because is it really going to impact people's decisions about whether or not to see the film is it's just unrelentingly sad. Oh, um, oh. It's just unrelentingly sad. It's not bleak. Mm. It is 
again, clever in its construction, extraordinary in its performances, but it is just a nosedive from out of the gate. And, you know, again, in the contemporary context, the heaviness that comes with that was really hard for me. But the thing that I left the film kind of thinking about was not, isn't dementia horrific? Because, of course, it's horrific. Mm. But how cinema, because it's particularly visceral and because we lose ourselves through that kind of suture and association with the characters when we're in that dark room, how it prepares us for life um, sometimes. And that's really valuable to me. I don't know if it is to everyone who goes to see movies. Obviously the unending Marvel Cinematic Universe franchise was just (laughs) otherwise. But I feel a little bit armoured and a little bit just a fraction more prepared for all the things that, you know, all the kind of griefs and sufferings that are packaged up in this life because I have had those stories told to me by people in really uh, beautiful, empathetic ways through the cinema. So on that basis, yeah. I would still recommend this film, even though it's a really sad film. Yeah. Mm. What sort of cinematic devices do they use to portray the cognitive decline? There's a couple of things. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit oh, you don't want to give anything them Because they are the film. Basically, characters swap roles. Oh, right. Um, and we are confused about why they're swapping, why a person who claims to be Anne is not Anne and so is Uh Anthony. Um, And the layout of the room and the environments um, change in disorienting ways as well. You're really seeing the world through the eyes of somebody who is, again, slowly succumbing to dementia and and, um, at the same time there's still a huge amount of empathy for his daughter particularly and his daughter's partner who are... You know, she's desperately trying to support him. She's desperately trying to do the right thing for him, but she can't care for him anymore. It's that it's that point in a person's life when, you know, it actually they 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 need outside help. But what outside help is on offer, um, particularly for people with limited means, is is pretty dire. Mm. I suppose it's no coincidence that Anthony Hopkins' character is called Anthony. I don't know actually whether or not the I mean the original play like as in it was written for him. No, well, no, so it was adapted. Well, adapted for him. Yeah, and I don't know whether or not. Yeah. um, But it does definitely give you that added layer of intimacy with his character. It's quite quite jarring at first, but then it's one of the things that actually helps you to sort of feel that what is happening to him is kind of real. Mm. What about uh, putting it up there with – because there's – I don't know what genre of film you would call this necessarily, but I'm thinking Still Alice, I'm thinking Amore, like f- yeah. f- films where sometimes you have to build up a bit of courage to watch it, but you never regret it. None of those films I have seen. Um. <laughs> <laughs> They're all beautiful films, and this is this is of a piece with those films in that it's about dementia, but also it's a very sympathetic, beautifully acted. I mean, some of the greatest talent in making films have come together to tell this story. Same for this one. There's another film coming out in a couple of weeks called Supernova, which looks at dementia from another angle. Um, yeah. Very how, do you um, how do you have any connections with dementia? Like, do you is anyone like how close are you to it? My um, father-in-law um, had dementia, but it was never so advanced. And I've got a really good mate 
at home whose mother died very young of dementia. So um, some knowledge of how it progresses, but actually just a, a little bit of emotional distance. I feel like this film would be fairly devastating for somebody who would actually so. live through it. Yeah, and I wouldn't recommend it. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I don't think if you've actually lived that in a really um, well, yeah. Way, I mean, because I I saw the preview of it and mm. um and was like, oh, because you know my father has dementia, and right. and so I was very excited about hearing your thoughts on it and getting an understanding of how um. Yeah, I guess devastating it would be. It is not uplifting. I'm going to tell you a story briefly. Yep. So when um, my stepson was about six years old, we watched E.T. with him and it got to the point when E.T. died briefly and his eyes welled up with tears and Mm. he started shaking his head and he said, I think this film is too sad for me. (laughs) (laughs) Too late. He's coming back. But that is how I feel the dementia would land for somebody who had a dear loved one with dementia. I think it is too sad for you, Geraldine. And I I would that would be my advice. Yeah. Okay. You could wait till it's you can watch it at home and then you can pause it and walk No, off. well this is the thing. I mean, obviously you will. Yeah. But it, I it sounds like going to a cinema right now, especially when the rest of the world can't, to see what's going to be a classic film and one of the best performances you could ever watch. Mm. You go should, to the movies yeah. and watch this before it wins Oscars as well. Yes, thank you, Daniel. I was like, I am still with the heaviness, but that is absolutely right. It is go- it is going to be a classic film. It is absolutely a classic performance from Anthony Hopkins. It's beautiful. It's just sad. Okay. Mm. It's The Father with Anthony Hopkins. Simone Baldi, thanks so much, as always. Thanks, guys. Triple. Ah. Neva Zizin is a Jewish, queer, non-binary activist, public speaker and writer who runs gender inclusivity workshops in schools, workplaces and in their local Jewish community. Nevo previously authored Finding Nevo, a memoir on the experience of gender transitioning and has now released The Pronoun Lowdown, demystifying and celebrating gender diversity. And to tell us about this bright little book, the Victorian Pride Centre ambassador joins us now. Nevo, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, Tell us, what is the Pronoun Lowdown and who is it for? The Pronoun Lowdown is basically a cute guidebook with lots of colours that's really hopefully accessible uh, and gives a rundown on the history of pronouns a little bit, our use of gender-neutral language in English, but also how uh, gendered languages around the world are adapting to gender-neutral language. Um, It's got a 100-year trans history timeline, as well as trailblazers and pioneers, some glossary stuff, basically just like so many uh, things that can kind of get you on board with the changing world that we live in. You're right that I'm certain this book would have come in handy for me. Why is that so? Well, because, you know, I think that although I transitioned or came out as trans in 2013, which really isn't very long ago at all, the entire kind of landscape in which I came out looked completely different to what it does now. So I had no trans representation whatsoever. I didn't even know that non-binary people could exist. I had no blueprints for what my future could look like. And so I stopped imagining a future, you know, and that's really what I aim to do with my work now is just sort of 
become the person that I didn't really have growing up so that younger people have somewhere to look. Talk to us about um, gender uh, around the world. I mean, in Australia, we, we know um, about the brother boys and, and sister girls. Um, can you tell us, talk to us more about that and also different examples from around the world? Yeah, sure. So, you know, something that we, we know, and especially if we're aware as well of the 80,000 plus years of history on this land and brother boys and sister girls who live and thrive in this country, then we also know that there are different genders around the world. There are Indian Hidra, Javanese Wadia, Hawaiian Mahu. Um, there are different understandings of gender in almost every culture around the world. Even within Judaism, there are actually six different genders represented in some of our holy texts. Um, but that's not really something that people talk about very much, which is a very uh, considered decision. That is not uh, an incidental thing, you know, and we know that colonization has had a really huge and violent impact on the representation of genders around the world and the expressions and free um, sort of experiences of gender diverse people around the world. And so having this conversation is so important to contextualize within that sort of global and historical framework, because it's not a new left wing fad or an invention of whiteness or something that is sort of just being discovered now. It's something that has existed in this world for all of time in the morning. Can you uh, speak to the considerations of yourself or more broadly that go into finding your chosen name? Yeah, sure. Finding a name is really hard. I think there's a reason why our parents pick them for us. <laughs> uh, it's not an easy thing to sort of think, like, you know, is this going to suit me? I really have no idea. And I remember at the time that I was picking a name, I was dating someone who wasn't of the same cultural background, and I gave her this list of names and said, you know, oh, what do you think about these? And she just sort of said to me, like, oh, they all sound really weird to me. I don't really know. <laughs> Um, so it's certainly a process. I mean, I was looking at baby books and like actually reading, reading baby books and trying to come up with lists from that, which is truly bizarre. Uh, but I guess at the end, I just sort of found Navarre and it just kind of, it hit me in a certain place. Um, but it also takes a bit of time to grow into your name. So I think if anyone's listening and is considering choosing a different name or is in the process at the moment, I think a really good thing is to have like a little bit of a testing group, a couple of friends who are willing to um, try out a few different names and maybe even just tell a story about you while you're in the space in the third person so that you, you can kind of hear how that name sits in the context of who you are a little bit. Um, but it does take time and, and some growing pains, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a point you make in the book where you're not necessarily locked in, are you? There's a, some fluid discovery occurring. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm very um, anti-prison industrial complex. I'm not really into locking anyone into anything. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of space and fluidity for exploration and for finding ourselves in the world. I think the most beautiful thing about being human is that we are constantly evolving and changing and growing, that we aren't static beings. Um, so I think something I really advocate for is for existing in the grey area, you know, a little bit more space to experiment and to find ourselves in this pretty confusing world that I would argue no one ever really figures out or finds themselves completely. Mm. What about your own background? You say when you began to transition, you had to stop misgendering yourself when speaking in Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was 
That was pretty hard because Hebrew is such a heavily gendered language. So I only ever learnt it in the feminine form. And it was such a long time ago, you know, that I was already so um, embedded into my psyche. Uh, so that took a lot of time. And especially because in Hebrew, gender neutral language doesn't even really exist. So the way that non binary people in Israel, Palestine often navigate that is by switching between the masculine and the feminine. Um, so that is also kind of a bit complicated because I think people just thought I was not very good at Hebrew. But actually, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you also write about allyship. Can you um, speak to some of the uh, pitfalls or the the political? Uh, how do you describe it? The <laughs> the unusual sort of politics around allyship. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think allyship is a really pertinent one, especially at the moment, because so many people are so keen to be allies, which is amazing. And obviously, we're stoked about that. Um, but I think the ways that we consider allyship as being just an absence of hatred is really not good enough. Because what we're looking for is not really people who don't hate us, but rather accomplices who are going to stand with us in a revolution. You know, like, the world is changing, things are changing really fast. And I'm not really interested in a corporate brunch that has my, you know, my identity at the top of it. Like, I need something that is actually tangible change. And I think what people don't understand is that the term ally is actually not a self-appointed title. You don't get to just call yourself an ally. It reminds me a little bit of when men are trying to pick up women at bars and they introduce themselves as feminists. <laughs> and it's like... Yeah, cool. What would your ex-girlfriend say about that? Or what would your what would your mum say about that? Would she call you a feminist? You know, so it's like when you call yourself an ally, it's almost like going to the reject shop and buying a little plastic trophy and saying you've won an Oscar. It's like, have you? Like, really? And, you know, I, I also equate it often to a maths problem. It's like you, maybe you got the answer right, but what was the working out? Mm. What did it take to actually get there? I want to see your process because otherwise I'm not sure that the answer is right. So when people call themselves an ally, it's like I want to see your resume. How did you earn that title? Because it's actually a big title to earn. It's a lot of responsibility. You want to be an ally. There's a huge amount of things you've got to do in order to be there, you know. Um, so I think striving towards being an ally, that being a priority, is definitely something that we should say and we should hold in our hearts but standing in solidarity with minoritized groups means that you need to lead by their example like they need to set the standards and you need to rise up to that um you also mentioned in the book there is a a, a 100 year um trans uh timeline history uh can you talk to us about some of the things that people might find a bit surprising like um such as is it lily elby Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lily LB, yeah. Lily, sorry. Yeah, I the think what got people, me. <laughs> <laughs> I think what people would find really surprising is, firstly, even just that this kind of trans history, even in the ways that we understand it now, has existed for hundreds of years, you know? Like, when we talk about ancient cultural practices and various gender identities across the world, you know, that to some people seems a little bit outside of their scope. But when we're talking about even just really modern-day society and some of the trans surgeries that have taken place, I think that that would be particularly interesting for people. And, um, you know, something I really tried to do with this timeline as well was to move away a little bit from the sort of US-centric way of looking at history that we have always done, especially within trans 
history. It's been so whitewashed and it's been so US-centric. Um, so I don't think I did a perfect job at, by any means, but I really tried to have a look at what else was going on in the world. Um, I think something I found really interesting, which is obviously very complicated and very nuanced, but that Iran is one of the places in the world where they perform the most gender transition surgeries, second to Thailand. Mm. I thought that was fascinating. Mm. I really did not know that. And it's not necessarily because of super progressive politics. It's like, I think there's a lot of um, underlying homophobia and it's like we would rather a man and a woman get together even if that means that that man has to transition. Um, so it's very complicated. Um, but there's just so much in there around, you know, some of our trans ancestors or transcestors, if you will, who mm -hmm. uh, have really, like, led the path because, you know, so many people say, oh, it's 2021, you know, you've got to get with the program. That's why we're so switched on to this stuff now. And it's like, it's not because of the year. It's because of our ancestors who have died in the trenches fighting for our rights. You know, we are standing on the backs of giants. We are bearing the fruits of a harvest that we never sowed like these there is a long history here, and I think that's really important for young trans people to be aware of because it makes them feel a part of something bigger and such a an ongoing feeling for LGBTIQA young people in, in particular, but also of any age, is that we feel so fundamentally alone in a world that simply wasn't built for us. And so when you start to discover this history, you're like, oh, my God, I've been lied to. I'm everywhere. <laughs> Uh, and just finally, uh, speaking of not doing a perfect job but acknowledging the effort, you're also right that I imagine that even in a few years some of the language in this book will be outdated or maybe even problematic. Can you respond to, you know, people who might go, oh, well, it's too hard, you know, it's, it's always moving and I can't keep up, and, and those sort of concerns? Yeah, um, I don't know. It just sounds so fun to me. I'm like, yeah, everything's always changing. The world is evolving. If you can keep up to date with your iPhones, you can keep up to date with pronoun use. Like, this, everything's changing all the time. It's not trans language that's evolving at such a fast pace. Everything is. And I know that that sounds really overwhelming and that sounds hard, but then it's really important to start engaging in it now because it's just going to get way ahead of you. It's how I felt when I only just recently upgraded my phone from an iPhone 6. I was <laughs> so far behind and it was such a like technological fatigue because I was like where's the middle button where is this like what am I supposed to do and you know what probably if I just updated my phones a little bit more frequently <laughs> I would have been a bit more switched on to it and that's not to um you know conflate trans politics with consumerism but still I think um you know the message is there that it's like the more that you're on top of this stuff now the more that you approach it there's so many resources out there nowadays there's so many things that approach it in a really gentle, loving, expansive kind of way, it's going to be a lot easier down the track, especially if you end up having a family member who's trans or gender diverse, who you obviously want to offer all your love to, but maybe you just don't get it. Doing that work now is preemptive and just a really beautiful thing to be a more anti-oppressive person in our society. All right. Well, the book is The Pronoun Lowdown, Demystifying and Celebrating Gender Diversity. The author is Navas Eisen, and it's out via Smith Street Books. Thanks so much for speaking with us. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.